Tomorrow, the critically acclaimed CBS All Access original series, The Good Fight, returns with a new season and a new fight. Christine Baranski is back as Diane Lockhart in a season that delivers mystery and intrigue. The question that everyone will be asking is, what is Memo 618? Tomorrow, join the fight by visiting cbs.com slash goodfight to start your free trial of CBS All Access. Hey, all this is Anna Palmer, host of the Women Rule podcast. I want to thank you for listening. And before we get to the show, I have a small ask. If you enjoy the Women Rule podcast, please like it and write a review and share it on social media. It's one of the best ways for new listeners to find the show. I hope this finds you all healthy and safe in these trying times. And now, here's our latest coronavirus podcast. On average, in the United States, we use 20 million N95 respirators in a year. Right now, we need probably 100 to 150 million respirators. And so if you say, okay, on the average year, we have 20 million. Now we're going to need 100 or 150 million. So we've got this gap between 80 and 130 million. Okay, where are we going to get this? From Politico, this is Women Rule where we bring you real talk with women bosses. I'm Anna Palmer, senior Washington correspondent and co-author of the Politico Playbook. Our guest today is Dr. Janice Orlowski, the chief healthcare officer of the Association of American Medical Colleges. As the COVID-19 pandemic has swept across the country and changed almost every aspect of daily life, Janice's job has changed too, putting her squarely in the middle of some of the biggest questions facing the medical community in the coronavirus crisis. Here at Politico, we continue to work from home to help slow the spread of coronavirus. So I spoke to Janice on Monday via a video conference, which is why this might sound a bit different than our typical episode. One of the things we discussed is a question that seems to be on everyone's mind. When will things get back to normal? And Janice's answer was both hopeful and sobering. I believe that we're going to return to a semi-normal life at the end of May, sort of think, you know, Memorial Day. But the other thing that I would say is, is that we have to prepare ourselves to go through a similar exercise in the fall, in the late fall, probably late November, by December, we are going to go through this again. And now, here's my conversation with Dr. Janice Orlowski. You are the chief healthcare officer at the American Association of Medical Colleges. Tell Correct. me a little bit what that means uh, for who, for those who might not be familiar. Sure. So the AAMC has as its members the 155 medical schools in the United States, as well as 400 teaching hospitals and health systems. And so as the chief healthcare officer at the AAMC, I work with the teaching hospitals principally, the CEOs, the chief medical officers on trying to maximize in our clinical care, look at clinical quality, and look at education and research in the setting of our teaching hospitals. We also are very involved in policies, specifically policies that affect our teaching hospitals and policies that affect the workforce of physicians. So how has your job changed or has it since the coronavirus pandemic kind of came into the U.S.? I spend probably 13 to 15 hours a day talking with, first of all, CMS, 
about what regulations we can move to the side in order to improve and maximize our health care. I speak with ASPR, which is the Assistant Secretary for Preparedness and Response, uh, CDC, FDA, you know, basically looking with uh, federal agencies and looking out and saying, how can we maximize our uh, response to this? How can we maximize the workforce? Then I also speak with our teaching hospitals and many people who are on the front lines. What do you need? What are the supplies that you need? Obviously, PPE has been number one, but PPE, ventilators, we've looked at the supply chain for ICU medications. And we've tried to uh, begin to prepare not only for today, but for tomorrow, for next week, what do we need? The other thing that we've done is working with our teaching hospitals, we have put together clinical guidelines. Everyone is becoming smarter every day about how to treat COVID-19 patients. What are you noticing? What seems to be the best management? And we're trying to collate that information in a single place. So I probably have more than 50 um, experts are across the country who are looking at guidelines. So we're, we're trying to share our experience and then come up with a consensus guidelines that we then share on our website. You uh, yeah, just relayed a lot of different hats that you're wearing right now. Um, there are more than 320,000 confirmed COVID-19 cases in the U.S., We see many states with stay-at-home advisories and many others taking a very hands-off approach to the pandemic. How concerned are you at this moment? I think that the United States uh, needs to continue to prepare ourselves because the number of cases right now will continue to rise until mid to late April. Um, I looked with my colleagues at statistics, and we expect that there will be a continual rise until, not to be a geek, but around April 16th, April 17th. And I, I say not to be a geek because the numbers are beginning to say this is likely where the peak of the epidemic is going to be. And then we've taken a look at numbers and say, how long after the peak can we expect that to continue? And the information now, and it continues to be better and better every day, the information is is probably the third week, maybe the fourth week of May for most places in the United States. And so as I look at these numbers, it tells me that we need to continue to prepare our healthcare systems and our healthcare workforce for what is going to be a continued rise in cases at least for the next two weeks, and then a sustained number of cases probably for, I'd say, seven weeks after that. You kind of mentioned or alluded to this at the top, but it's almost like there's two different crises happening right now. There's the kind of pandemic itself, but then there's also this shortage of medical supplies and equipment. First, can you tell us about PPE? What exactly is that? So PPE is personal protective equipment. And in a hospital, there's multiple different, I would say, levels of uh, PPE. If I went in to see a patient who had, say, an infectious diarrhea, uh, the sign on the door would say what level of protection I need to wear. You need to wear a gown when you go in here. You need to wear gloves. And when you leave, uh, you have to wash your hands with soap and water, you know, for example. For someone who's a COVID-19 case, 
the uh, initial uh, requirements and, and still the requirements for those that are in the ICU is that you need to wear an N95 respirator. And that is sort of the highest level of protection. So you wear the N95 respirator, you have to have your eyes covered, you have to have a gown, uh, either a paper or a cloth gown over your clothes, you have to uh, have gloves on. So again, the PPE, the personal protective equipment, there's different levels of what we wear. So that's what PPE means. We have been caught woefully short of PPE in the United States, even though I think people thought we were prepared. So talk about that, because I think that's one of the questions that comes up a lot in the news. We hear about this as a problem, but can you put it in any sort of context? You know, what's the difference between the amount normally used and the amounts that are going to be needed in the next couple of weeks and, and, you know, maybe several weeks. I think it's hard for the average American to even kind of understand the scale of what we're talking about. Sure. So I'm going to give you rough numbers. On average, in the United States, we use 20 million N95 respirators in a year. Now, most people don't think about it, but, you know, sometimes we have to use N95 respirators for certain uh, influenzas or for tuberculosis or for different kinds of infections. So in the United States, we use about 20 million. Initially, as we took a look at the numbers and we took a look at what uh, was going on, there was an initial estimate that we would need between 60 to 80 million respirators because of the uh, infection that's going on. Right now, what we're thinking is we need probably 100 to 150 million respirators. And and those numbers a couple of weeks ago sounded crazy, but they don't sound crazy now as we take a look at the spread in the United States. So if you say, okay, on the average year, we have 20 million. Now we're going to need 100 or 150 million. So we've got this gap between 80 and 130 million. Okay, where are we going to get this? So as we have learned, of the 20 million that is used every year, U.S. manufacturers probably make about two to four million. And again, I'm using rough numbers. And the rest of the N95 respirators come from outside of the country, principally from China. And so what we know is that China was the first place that was hit. They closed their manufacturers down. And so we turned to the U.S. manufacturers and said, you guys have to get going. You've got to be making a lot more than two to four million. And they said, "Okay, we're going to rev it up. We're going to make 400 percent more than usual. Even if they rev it up from two million to eight million or four million up to 10 or 12, you know, that is a dent in the total number that we need. And so I think. Part of what we're looking at right now is how do we fill that gap? Now, there were N95 respirators that were in the national strategic stockpile. Not enough, but you know, part of the gap is filled with the stockpile. We also know that the Department of Defense, that the Pentagon released their military. So that goes into the gap. And then about uh, a week or so ago, the CDC said, you know, we have medical grade um, N95 respirators, but we also have these N95 respirators 
for people, and I'll give you a simple uh, example for people who put up wallboard and you know sand it down. They were N95 respirators, and what the CDC said is we're looking at those, and those are good enough to be used in this medical crisis. So we're now bringing industrial grade N95 respirators into our use. All of that is good, but all of that doesn't get us up to 100 million or 150 million. And that's where our gap comes from. Well, I mean, in terms of these shortages, it's clearly the mask, but there's also the issue of ventilators, there's ICU beds. Can you explain to, to kind of this, the lay person why we're in this situation? Is it, was it under preparedness? What, you know, what, what made it so that we kind of weren't able to, as a country to be prepared for this crisis? I think that there's a, a number of reasons as we take a look at it. First of all, I would say that we have become prepared in this country after um, major events. So, for example, after 9-11, there was a lot of preparedness and a lot of preparedness money that was out there. Um, After the Ebola crisis several years ago, five years ago, again, there was a ramp up. How do we get ready? What do we do? What's the preparedness? And I would say that there are groups of hospitals, particularly teaching hospitals, that have remained ready. And there was an organization of preparedness where dollars were given to institutions to remain at a a ready alert status. So what did they do? They bought ventilators. They had training for their folks. They had respirators that they bought. They had PPE that they bought. Most of that money has dwindled to practically nothing within the last year or two. And in addition, as we take a look at certain areas within the government, certain preparedness programs were shut down or were moved into other areas. And I would say it didn't have the same attention and therefore not the same amount of money, not the same amount of direction that we needed for something like this. And so as I talk to my colleagues around the country who lead the major teaching hospitals, the big beds, they had places that they knew that they could expand to. So, you know, I talked to the folks at New York Presbyterian. I talked to the folks at Montefiore and Northwell, and they have used their pandemic protocols to expand. And so they have increased the number of ICU beds. They've worked through their plans. They've increased the number of ventilators. I would say two things. One is there was an expectation that there would be more state and federal assistance. And I think that there is some, but there's gaps in that area. And I also think that not everyone continued the preparedness because over the last couple of years, there has been, as I said, sort of a loss of those preparedness dollars, but also a lot of emphasis on trying to save money in hospitals. We've had, you know, more than 100 rural hospitals have closed. Hahnemann Hospital in Philadelphia closed. So there's been a real crunch financially, not on all uh, hospitals and health systems, but on quite a few of them. And so when they take a look and say, you know, we're having a financial crisis, you know, what do we need to be doing? Mm -hmm. They spent their money 
on on the problem of today and not saying, you know, let's take a bunch of money and let's work on our preparedness. That's not what the hospitals were doing, you know, as they were having financial problems as they were closing. So I think I've given you some of the many variables that have led to us not being as prepared as we should be. Well, one of the things uh, that AAMC has been out in front on is this idea of bringing back retired doctors and nurses to help with just yes. the, the crush of patients at this time. Walk us through that. Why is that needed? So the AAMC has been talking about the physician shortage for years. The United States has less physicians per 10,000 patients anyway. Italy has more physicians per 10,000 patients. So we start at a low uh, number. But what we were saying is, is um, starting with this low ratio of doctors per 10,000 patients, even to keep us at the current level, as we see the U.S. population grow, and as we see the U.S. population age, we are going to need more doctors. And every year we've come out with predictions. And this past year, it's anywhere from 40 to about 120,000 physicians that we felt that we were short based on just getting to sort of an average number of docs per 10,000 people. What the AAMC has done is we've worked with our medical schools over the last 10 to 15 years, and we've actually increased the number of medical students by 35%. Now what we're focusing on is returning to the government, and the government helps pay for the second part of training. So there's medical school, then there's residency, and then you practice. And what we're saying is, is we need to increase the number of residents that are paid for through our federal programs. And that number has been frozen since 1997. Now we do believe that there only needs to be a modest increase because telehealth is changing things, team training is changing, the use of nurse practitioners and physician assistants have been wonderful addition to the healthcare workforce. But even with all of that, we believe that the number is still low and needs to be increased. You know, is there any concern that these retirees are part of a population that's particularly high risk given COVID-19 and the fact that people that are older often die at a much higher rate? The answer is yes, we are concerned. But I do not see these physicians being on the front line. I see these physicians helping in many um, different areas. So, for example, I made rounds uh, within the last week at, at the hospital that I have privileges at. And even though there were a high number of COVID patients or suspected COVID patients there, there were also people, and I'm a nephrologist, a kidney specialist, there were people who were in the hospital because they had renal failure. There were people in the hospital with heart failure. So I see that the retired physicians have a role to play for all the people that are in the hospital and probably don't need to be on the front line seeing the COVID-19 patient. And hopefully that reduces their risk. I want to rewind a little bit. Do you remember when you first heard about COVID-19? Oh, I remember hearing about it in December, right after the holidays. 
my initial reaction was concern. And what I wondered is whether we were going to have another SARS-like epidemic. We in the medical field and leadership have talked about respiratory pandemics. We've been very concerned saying, you know, there's going to be a SARS or a MERS or, you know, something. But I can remember at that time thinking, you know, sort of here we go again. Can we have the public health efforts that we're, we're going to need to not have this be a pandemic, but have this be sort of a short-lived, unusual infection? That's what I was thinking in December. We'll be right back after this quick break. Tomorrow, the critically acclaimed CBS All Access original series, The Good Fight, returns with a new season and a new fight. Christine Baranski is back as Diane Lockhart, the woman who says what you're thinking and does what you wish you could do. In a season that delivers mystery and intrigue, the question that everyone will be asking is, what is Memo 618? Celebrated for its remarkable ensemble cast and hailed as wildly inventive, The Good Fight has been named the best show on TV by critics and fans alike. Tomorrow, join the fight by visiting cbs.com slash goodfight to start your free trial of CBS All Access. That's cbs.com slash goodfight to start your free trial today. I want to get your reaction. I mean, you're dealing with the federal government. What's your reaction to how the Trump administration has handled this? So I want to be cautious about criticism because, you know, it's hard to be a leader, it's hard to be at the top. On the other hand, I would say that as I take a look at some of the actions of CDC, as I take a look at some of the actions of the COVID task force, um, there should have been earlier orders for lockdown. There should have been earlier assembly of uh, the team, and I would say more cohesion in the team. I also think that testing to this day still is not adequate in the United States. It's improving dramatically. But I would say we're going to look back on this and we are going to come to the fundamental conclusion that we were late in a number of things that we did. The lockdown should have been earlier. The FDA testing should have been earlier. And I I think we're going to reflect back on this and say we were late. Yeah, I'd be curious. I mean, your colleagues, you mentioned, you know, Tony Fauci, certainly at the CDC, and and now Deborah Burks has an office in the White House. We are seeing uh, a real transition, I think, over the last week or so of some of the medical professionals having a much bigger role. Right, right. And, and, you know, I, I, I have to say, Tony Fauci is a national treasure. He's wise. I think he is um, not someone who overreacts. And to read the paper and see that he personally now has to have guards and that he's been attacked by um, certain individuals in this country, it's shocking to me as a physician and as a scientist, but it's shocking to me that someone who really, his only role in this is to try to provide as good uh, information and expertise as his 40 plus years of experience and and knowledge can do. Uh, It's shocking to me at how part of the public reacts uh, to them. We have sort of a sort of an anti-science or an anti, you know, I'm not sure what. But I do see um, now, and thankfully, 
Dr. Burks, uh, you know, a, a incredible expert brought in. Tony Fauci, um, incredible expertise. Dr. Adams, you know, the Surgeon General, incredible expertise there. And I really am seeing sort of a coalescence now of a very strong medical slash science group that are coming together and, and providing very good and very strong advice. I'm curious, given your experience in medicine, how has that affected the way you're personally approaching living in this kind of COVID-19 era? Is, is it, are you doing anything maybe different given your background than what someone like myself, a journalist, is, is trying, to, trying to do? So I needed to uh, check on my elderly parents and mm-hmm. I, I went to the store and had to purchase a, a few necessities for them at, at the grocery store. And I walked into that store with a mask on and I probably saw, you know, 20 people in the store and there were only two of us that had masks. And I have to say, before I got out of my car, I thought to myself, you know, should I put the mask on? And I thought, you know what? It's a good recommendation. It's a statement to folks out there. Put your mask on, be a good example, and go into the grocery store. And, I, you know, people sort of looked at me and I thought, huh, you know. But what I would say is wash your hands, put your mask on, stay at home, don't go out if you don't have to go. The other thing that I would tell you is that when I do go and make rounds uh, at the hospital, I come back and and again, I do only a little bit of practice. I mostly work administratively at the AAMC. I I have a, a set of clothes that I put on. I take off at a special place. I completely wash and shower and wash my clothes before I interact with my family. It's not the same thing as the ER doctors or the ICU doctors that we're seeing, but I have to say it has changed how I act and how I enter my home. And I'm very concerned about my family and protecting them. So, you know, it's sort of a typical doctor story, but it's front of mind in everything that I do. The other thing that I do is I send notes out to all my family and my husband's family, and I would have to look back on my emails, but I sent out a note to shelter at home probably weeks before uh, the order came in the the different states. And I think some of my family members were, thought I was crazy, but I basically sent a note and I said, I love you very much. Stay in your damn house. So as a physician, I really feel like I'm trying to uh, live very strictly within what I want everyone in the United States to be doing and what we all want everyone to be doing. Do you think that recommendation on, on masks I mean, it seems to me like it was it was pretty late. Are you surprised that it took so long for that recommendation to come out? Yes. You know, I think the problem with the masks is that um, it's hard to have in order to have everyone wear masks when there's not enough PPE in the hospitals. So really the question is, is you know, now you see online, you see um, masks uh, that people can make and scarves and whatnot. And you know, I think what you want to do is do your best to cover your nose and your mouth. Um, I think it was late. All right. Well, I am, I'm taking more of your time than I know we, uh, we said we were going to, but I have one last question for you. You know, this is a moment and we've talked a lot about it through this podcast where people are uncertain about what the future holds on pretty much every front. Things are different than I think anyone in the U S probably, ever you know, envisioned, a lot of people are understandably 
curious and concerned about when life is going to return to normal. Do you have any sense of when that might be? So I believe that we're going to return to a semi-normal life at the end of May. Sort of think, you know, Memorial Day, we're, we're going to have a semi-normal life. But the other thing that I would say is, is that we have to prepare ourselves to go through a similar exercise in the fall, in the late fall. If you take a look at the 1918-1919 influenza pandemic, and if you take a look at how coronavirus is acting, this is not just the spring of 2020, sort of the winter and spring of 2020. Probably late November by December, we are going to go through this again. Now, what we hope is that we have a vaccine but there's not going to be a vaccine that's going to be ready in six to eight months. And we hope that some of the antiviral medications will help people and have them not get as sick as they are. But both of those are hopes and not um, realistic to think that we're going to have that in six to eight months. And so the likelihood is that we're going to spend the summer months having a semi-normal life, but getting ourselves prepared to go through this again and go through it better. Be ready to stay at home. Understand what that means. Everyone get as much toilet paper as they need to have, you know. We're going to do this again, and we're going to be smarter and better at doing this. And so let's start talking about how we make it through the next seven weeks, but then let's talk about how we're going to do it smarter come the wintertime. Women Rule is produced by Zach Stanton. Irene Gucci is the executive producer of Politico Audio. If you're a fan of the show, please subscribe to Women Rule on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Rate us and leave a review. And please share our episodes on social media and follow me on Twitter and Instagram at apalmerdc. You can also join the Women Rule community by texting WOMEN to 66866.